And so with that Bible, let's turn to the very beginning of it, Genesis 1. I I told you at the outset of this extended series on the millennium that we're building a pyramid of sorts, that there are so many issues related to the millennium, not the least of which is premillennial theology, that I wanted to make a definitive, definitive statement and be as comprehensive as possible And some of you were there uh, quite a few months ago when we actually did a focus group of sorts. When I was teaching BTI, I I used one Sunday, and we did kind of a a little focus group because I was terrified to tell you how many messages I want to preach in this Millennium Series. And so enough of you said you should go ahead and do it, that I blame you if it's not going well. Because in in an attempt to be comprehensive, I confess at times I have doubt if that level of detail is helpful. Should we go that deep? Should we take a couple of years to understand an issue? Should we bother with that? Shouldn't we just maybe be a little more surface? But I've been reminded this week, coming across some written materials that I would consider typical of shallow American evangelicalism, Bible study material that's so inane and so childish that it's clearly written by those with no training in Bible study methods whatsoever, who, who, who are so shallow that they don't even know it. And after the gut-wrenching experience of trying to wade through those materials, frankly, it angered me that God's people are being led to believe that that garbage is actually the sum and substance of the Bible. That the Bible is basically a bunch of devotional promises all related to me and my life, and this passes for Bible study. That the Bible is reduced to, quote, God's love letters to mankind, unquote. Have you read the end of the the book of Judges when a guy hacks a woman into 12 pieces? I don't know how you call that a love letter. That is a sentimental view of the Bible. The Bible is not a love letter. It is the revealing of God in words. It includes great love, no doubt. But you cannot reduce Scripture to little, sentimental, sappy, poignant sayings. What that reminded me of is that details matter, reminders matter, repetition matters. And I always fall back on 2 Peter 1 where Peter said, I thought it good to talk to you by way of reminder, which is the preacher's admonition to repeat himself. Details matter. The Word of God is infinite in depth. It deserves our best attention, our best efforts. So we're embarking now on kind of the next level of the pyramid. We're doing a biblical theology in the, in the millennium, of the millennium in the Old Testament. And by biblical theology, I'm using that term technically. Biblical theology, to be very simple about it, is the idea of taking theology as it comes in Scripture through Genesis and Exodus and so, so forth. Systematic theology is taking a topic from all over the Bible at one time. So we're going in biblical theology fashion, just taking these issues as they come. Issues, uh, parts of Scripture in the Old Testament that point to a future millennial kingdom of Christ. So I'm calling this series Old Testament Witnesses to the Coming Kingdom of Christ. And this isn't going to be so much in reference to Israel. We'll devote much time specifically to Israel in later series But what I'm hoping to accomplish in this series is simply to show the necessity of a kingdom of God on earth because it's revealed all over the Old Testament. Now, we'll intersect with Israel all over the place. You can't go through the Old Testament without doing that. 
We've already walked through some of these texts we're going to look at tonight, particularly concerning the Abrahamic covenant. But I want to include them briefly as part of an overall journey through Genesis. Now, if you were at the Grace Theological Academy this summer or four years ago when we began the Pentateuch, what I'm going to do this evening is review for you. But it's so foundational to all of the Bible because Genesis is the story of the kingdom of God and the millennium is the outworking of the kingdom of God. So it bears repeating. And so if this sounds familiar to you, um, take that as a, as a joy to hear the truth once again. Now, everyone knows that the best stories of all time grab your attention by saying what? Once upon a time. We love those stories. And you're transported to another time and another world where all things are possible and only the imagination can limit what can or cannot be. I, I've read a lot of fictional stories, not so much anymore, but in, in years past I have. But even the realm of fantasy or science fiction, which emphasize great and fantastic stories beyond imagination, none of them can possibly compete with the grand and epic scale of the plot of Scripture. There's no competition. The story of the Bible has a much better start than Once Upon a Time. It begins with, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what's so completely unique about the biblical story is that it's all completely true. And although the Bible has been completed, at some point the story passed you up such that the end of the book hasn't happened yet. And so the book is complete, but the story is ongoing. And that story is the story of God's kingdom on this earth. That's the story of the Bible. At the end of the evening, I want to take a few moments to apply what we're going to learn Because it tells us how to think and behave as believers in Christ looking forward to the millennium and and really to the final state. I want to begin our time by just briefly making a list of some of the features of the original earthly kingdom set up by God. And there's eight or nine of them. And we'll just do a little survey here in Genesis. The first feature is mankind in a pristine, perfect world created by God. Mankind in a per, in pristine, perfect world created by God. Genesis 1.31, the last verse of Genesis 1. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and so the man became a living being. Mankind in a perfect world. It's the second feature of the original kingdom, mankind exercising dominion over the earth. Genesis 1.26, exercising dominion. 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This dominion, it literally means to tread upon, to walk upon something, to have dominance over it. We see a third feature. Mankind is a perfect representative of God on the earth. Mankind is a perfect representative of God on the earth. Verse 27 of chapter 1. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The image of God means we are representatives of God on the earth. We do his bidding. We represent him. There's a fourth feature, mankind multiplying into nations spread over the earth. Mankind multiplying into nations spread over the earth. 128, 
God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that creeps on the earth. There's a a spreading out, a fruitfulness. There's a fifth feature, mankind working as God's representatives on the earth. We work as God's representatives on the earth. Chapter 2, verse 15. Then Yahweh God took the man and set him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. There's a sixth feature, mankind in perfect fellowship with God. Not only do we, did, was man to cultivate and keep the garden. Verse 16 of chapter 2, And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat. The Garden of Eden, direct communion with God, obedience of man toward God. Verse 17, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it. For in the day you eat from it you will surely die. You have man in sinless relationship with God. Back in chapter 1, verse 28, the beginning, God blessed them. Perfect, sinless relationship. You have an eighth feature, mankind in perfect fellowship with each other. Perfect fellowship with each other. Chapter 2, verse 18, then Yahweh God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Marriage was originally created as the ultimate perfect relationship with one another. And even now in our sinful world in which humanity is is clothed and ashamed, the marriage relationship is meant to be a taste of that perfect human relationship because of total vulnerability, total intimacy, oneness, unity. And then there's a ninth feature of this original kingdom. Mankind organized in nations with a central capital nation. Mankind organized in nations with a central capital nation. Chapter 2, verse 10. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. Eden is the central capital nation in this kingdom. Verse 11 speaks of the land of Havilah. Verse 12, the land of Cush. Verse 14 speaks of Assyria. Now, obviously, those weren't the names of those nations yet, necessarily, especially Assyria. But the fact is, is that the Holy Spirit already, in Genesis 2, organized the world into nations with a capital nation, Eden. Now, I want you to just file that list away in your mind for a little while. We're going to come back to it. But the core of this kingdom plan is found in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, which we return to repeatedly because it's so seminal to the whole Bible. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. In previous messages, we've called this the central directive, the focus and thrust of the entire story of the Bible. We might also simply call it God's kingdom plan. And a good way to over, overall just to understand Genesis and God's kingdom plan and how this pushes us toward the millennium is to examine some key pieces to that kingdom plan which are revealed in Genesis 
And so we're just going to do kind of a high-altitude flyover to try to wrap our minds and hearts around what the Lord would have us understand about His grand kingdom plan. We're starting from Genesis. We'll do many other Old Testament passages in the weeks to come. And so in broad terms, I want to look at six of these key pieces. I'm going to jump around to some different places in Genesis, and from here on out it might be more helpful for you to just listen and note the references because we're going to go to quite a few But the first key piece we'll call the interruption of the kingdom plan. The interruption of the kingdom plan. After the glorious creation of the universe in six literal days, after the creation of the man, the creation of the woman, in the perfect world as God's chosen representatives who were to be fruitful, they were to multiply, they were to fill the earth with their offspring, sin interrupted the whole kingdom plan as viewed from the human standpoint. Of course, it was always part of God's plan, but from our standpoint, it's an interruption. Now, the origin of sin is largely a mystery to us. Here's what we do know. First of all, Satan was the first to sin. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12, tells of the fall of Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly. In the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. We get in Ezekiel 28 even more detail that Satan was perfect in every way. He was in the Garden of Eden. He was the anointed, the chief guardian angel. And he was on the holy mountain of God. That is the Garden of Eden. And in fact, the condemnation of Ezekiel 28.15 is sad. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So we know that Satan was the first to sin. We also know that sin did not originate with God. Habakkuk 1 says that of God that your eyes are too pure to see evil and you cannot look on trouble. Isaiah 6 says that God is holy, holy, holy. So sin cannot originate with God. What else do we know? We have to add in the word yet here. Yet, sin is part of God's overarching plan. Sin did not originate with God, but sin is part of God's overarching plan. All without touching or violating His holiness for His own purposes and for His own glory. We don't know the perfect mind of God in allowing a sinful Satan to enter the garden. But we do know that God entered into a relationship with Adam as his appointed representative. And this representation entailed responsibility, and responsibility includes loyalty. And so God gave Adam a limitation. It was a simple limitation. Yes, Adam was the human lord over the earth, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was God's and God's alone. Everything else, Adam was the lord over it. And so Adam had a choice demonstrate loyalty, demonstrate fidelity to his sovereign God with unqualified faithfulness or attempt to step outside those bounds. Enter the serpent. And Adam failed. And the consequence was immediate spiritual death, alienation from God, the eventual physical death and alienation from his own body. And that alienation had a horizontal consequence as well. The man was now placed at odds with his own wife and vice versa. 
The man and woman together were made in the image of God, but now these image bearers were tainted with sin, tainted with the curse of Genesis 3, and it tells us that there would be strife between them. And so marriage itself now becomes a a difficult thing because of the curse. So the reality of sin now becomes what we might call a stain. It stains all of God's plan. Uh, And so now God's plan has to work that stain out. And that's worked out in his kingdom plan. Sin must be acknowledged. It must be dealt with. It must be eradicated. And that is now a major theme in the rest of Scripture. The rest of the story of the Bible is about God's plan to restore both mankind and his creation to original kingdom purposes. And so the kingdom plan is interrupted. That makes the second key piece a logical conclusion. The second key piece is the resistance to the kingdom plan. The resistance to the kingdom plan. From the very start of history of sinful humanity, the offspring of Adam and Eve were resistant to God, resistant to His plan. Some desired to follow the Lord, but most did not. The vast majority did not. We could track the unfaithful through Genesis 4 and 5, but we'll just skip to the time when all of mankind had rejected their Creator, the one true living God. Genesis 6 verse 5 says, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God is the owner of creation, so he decided to wipe it out. He would save one man and his family, Noah, Genesis 6, 8 says that Noah found favor with God. This is a Hebrew word that means he found grace. God has buried Adam in the ground after his death, at least metaphorically. Genesis three nineteen, God says, You shall return to the ground because from it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. And now God is going to bury all of mankind under the waters of the flood. And so God would begin again with another Adam. This Adam is Noah. Noah was a true believer in the Lord, but he was chosen by God as an object of the elective grace of God. Noah found favor, grace. Noah was God's choice, not Noah's choice. God wasn't looking through the earth desperately hoping that one guy would be faithful. He chose one guy and he made him faithful. God said in Genesis 6.18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Now, which covenant is this? Well, we know about the Noahic covenant, in which God promised in Genesis 9 never to wipe out the earth with a flood again. But it seems more likely that God is referring here to what I've called the central directive, the original mandate of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that mankind is to be fruitful and to multiply and subdue the earth, to tread upon the earth, to have dominion on the earth. Because after the flood, Genesis 9, 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the original central directive. Verse 7 of Genesis 9, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, swarm on the earth and multiply in it. And in between those verses, the new conditions of this mandate are spelled out. When Adam was the vice regent of the earth, the animals were subservient to him. Adam named them. He was in perfect relation with them. And now with Noah as the vice regent of the earth, things have changed. 
Genesis 9, 2, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. And because of sin, God introduces the death penalty into human existence, the formation of human government to keep mankind from living in total anarchy. And so here's the second chance. Mankind has another chance to follow God with only eight people on the earth, maybe now they'll stop resisting God's kingdom. But it wasn't going to happen. Resistance continued in the descendants of Noah. Genesis 11 records the building of the Tower of Babel, which had one distinct purpose. That is to thwart the kingdom plan of God. That was the whole purpose of the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11.4, they said, Come, Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So instead of doing the Lord's bidding, the people of the world decided to stick together to make a name for themselves. They did not want to be fruitful and multiply and scatter and swarm over the earth at the level the Lord intended. And so the Lord confused their language into many languages and they were forced to disperse into national groupings based in language. And so because of sin, resistance to the kingdom plan continued. But in God's sovereignty, in the very next chapter in Genesis, after the Tower of Babel, we now get to the third key piece of God's kingdom plan, and that is the strategy of the kingdom plan. The strategy of the kingdom plan. How was God going to bring about a perfect kingdom as per His design? Well, enter a man named Abram. God told Abram to leave his homeland of Ur and go to a land that God would show him. There was one condition to the covenant that God would give to Abram. He had to leave his home. He had to go to Canaan. He had to leave everything behind. Abram fulfilled that condition. God was now about to enter into a covenant that is unconditional with Abram, soon to be renamed by God Abraham. It would be an unconditional covenant in that God would fulfill his part no matter what. It was conditional at first in that Abram first had to obey and leave the land he was commanded, but he did that. And now as part of this covenant, God was going to give Abraham's physical descendants a specific portion of land. Now, I've spoken frequently about the importance of the land promises of the Old Testament, and I only want to give them as much weight as the Bible does. And it's a lot. These are to be taken literally. They're they're part of this unconditional covenant which God will never abandon. This is because the land promises are are key. They're, They're so vital to God's covenant with Abraham. They can't be spiritualized. They can't be redefined. Dr. Eugene Merrill, an eminent Old Testament scholar, he wrote this. As most scholars now recognize, the covenant and its circumstances were in the form of a royal land grant a legal arrangement well attested in the ancient Near East. Now, what what is this land grant? This was an arrangement whereby a more powerful king, known as a suzerain or a sovereign, he initiated the covenant with a lesser king, known as a vassal or a servant king. And the covenant bestowed on the vassal a kingdom under the rule of the sovereign. Sometimes there was a reason that was known for this, maybe a, a service rendered to the sovereign, but often it was simply because of the gracious pleasure of the suzerain or the sovereign. And so the land is everything. That is, that is part and parcel of the covenant, no pun intended. Now, God's covenant with Abraham, 
not only continues the mandate to Adam and to Noah to be fruitful and to multiply, but now it spells out a strategy. The central directive to have a kingdom on this earth with people spread out, being fruitful and multiply, has a strategy. And that strategy is first introduced in Genesis 12. Then it's explained and reiterated numbers of times through Genesis. I I won't belabor this for very long because we've just done the Abrahamic covenant a few weeks ago. But first of all, God would make Abram into a great nation. He would make him into a great nation. This is, of course, the nation of Israel. And just as Eden functioned as the central nation where God uniquely dwelt with his people, Israel was to serve as a central nation where God uniquely dwells with his people. And for any idea of dominion and nationhood to be meaningful, land has to be a part of that promise. And so it is. Even today, Israel is still called the holy what? Land. Not a holy idea, not a holy ideal, not a holy uh, uh, metaphor. It is land. It's the land which belongs to God and is given to his chosen mediator nation. God promised in Genesis 17, 8, I give to you all the land of Canaan. He specified the size of the land in Genesis 15, 18. On that day, Yahweh cut a covenant with Abram, saying to your seed, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river to the river Euphrates. Essentially, that's the west to east borders of the land grant. Nine other times in Scripture, the phrase from Dan to Beersheba describes the north to south boundaries. What does that mean? It means that the land promised to Israel by God occupies current Israel. It also encompasses the entire nation of Jordan, the entire nation of Lebanon, the entire nation of Syria, most of Iraq, a little piece of Kuwait, part of Egypt, and the northern part of Saudi Arabia. That's actual Israel. That's the Israel that is to come. We have never seen those borders enforced as Israel's borders. That tells us what? There will be a day in the future when we do. In the economy of God, all those nations are squatters on God's land. Nation and land. Second part of the covenant. Abraham would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. He would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Kings would come from him. And so God changed Abram's name to Abraham, father of a multitude. And Israel was now to serve a mediatorial function, to be a mediator, to stand between holy God, rather, and his fallen creation. And they're the ones to give the message of saving grace. That there's an opportunity to be part of the people of God. We indicated this morning that Israel's temple even was to have a Gentile court to welcome all the nations to worship God. It was to be through Israel that the world would learn of the great and only true God, Yahweh. And then third, God would give Abraham a seed, plural. God promised Abraham that this nation would number like the stars of the sky or the sand of the seashore, And so in Israel, God would see his mandate to be fruitful and multiply fulfilled. But this promise includes a seed singular as well, a singular man. Genesis 22, 17, who shall possess the gate of his enemies. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, 16 explains that this one seed refers to Christ. And so in Abraham... A chosen nation would come who would mediate between God and sinful humanity. All the nations of the earth would be blessed. And 
by the way, just a side note here, is a part of this covenant with God. Abraham was promised personal blessing and protection. Why is that necessary? Is that just a bonus? Well, no, it's, it's so that the rest of the promises wouldn't be in danger. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And this was despite Abraham's failings. And never once did God threaten to undo his promises. Never once did God say, you know, you just about crossed the line. You do one more thing and I'm out of here. These are promises which are still in effect 4,000 years later. And we expect prophetically to be carried out. Immediately after receiving these covenant promises from God, Abram went to Egypt because of a famine and he told his beautiful wife Sarah, still called Sarai at that time, to say that she was Abraham's sister so that he wouldn't be killed to get Sarah. Sarah was taken to the Pharaoh's court. As a result, Abraham had not trusted the Lord and instead trusted his own cunning and deception. And yet, what did the Lord do? Genesis twelve seventeen. but Yahweh struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Well, that doesn't sound very fair. No, that's according to covenant. Genesis 14, Abraham and his men won a great battle over several kings who had kidnapped Abraham's nephew Lot. Big battle. Genesis 20 and 21, the Philistine king, Abimelech, he made a covenant and a friendship with Abraham because he figured out it's better to be Abraham's friend than his enemy. Now, Abimelech had also taken Sarah, but God spoke to him in a dream by night and gently said, Behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman whom you have taken. Now, why am I mentioning this aspect of the Abrahamic covenant and the fact that Abraham just continued to be blessed? Because it illustrates how God perfectly treats those with whom he makes a covenant with those that the Bible calls the elect. In fact, that's our fourth key piece, the elect of the kingdom plan. The elect of the kingdom plan. Now, we've talked in broad terms, touching on Israel and about the nations. I think a reasonable question is, okay, this sounds great, this is all this broad ethereal theology, but where does that leave me as an individual? What about me? It's all well and good to say that through Israel the nations will hear the one true God, but how do I get included in that plan? Well, because of sin, the interruption of God's kingdom plan, there is an alienation between humanity and God, so there must be a reconciliation. And that reconciliation is really the heart and soul of biblical salvation from sin. The event and the process of being reconciled to God God would have to conquer sin, which had been introduced into his creation. And that's central in God's promise made to Satan in the Bible's very first promise of a coming Savior, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Mankind could not cover his own sin. Do you remember how Adam tried to cover his own sin with a fig leaf? It's ridiculous when you think about it. Salvation requires divine initiative. Salvation requires God's work. It can't be done by man's work. And so Genesis 3.21 says, Then Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. What does that imply? God killed animals. There was a substitutionary sacrifice. Blood was shed for the first time. 
And very quickly after the fall of man into sin, we see the results in individuals. It's, it's happening. It's, it's growing like a virus. The very first human being born on earth, Cain, murdered his own brother, Abel. Cain's descendant, Lamech, threatened his wives. He boasted of murdering the man for striking him. And so individuals, you, me, we need salvation from sin. And already in Genesis, we see how these individuals are identified. Genesis 10 and 11 is concerned with all of humanity. It culminates in the Tower of Babel confrontation in which the the people of the earth gather themselves together against God, against His plan. And all of a sudden, we go from Genesis 11-1, the whole earth has one language, to Genesis 12-1, Yahweh said to Abram. The focus of Genesis narrows instantly down to one man and his descendants. In fact, those are the two major sections of Genesis. Chapters 1 through 11 concern the cosmic issues of God, the sovereign creator, the divine order for life, the entrance of sin into the world, the rejection of God's plan by the people of the earth, and it covers over 2,000 years of human history. Genesis 12 through 50 deals with just four generations focused on one family, the family of Abram. And this is where we get to the answer, but what does this have to do with me? How, how can I take part? What was the criteria that the Bible gives for Abraham being this one man? Genesis 12.1 tells us, very simply, Yahweh said to Abram. The criteria is that God chose him. That's it. God chose him. And we've already seen that God chose Noah. He set his favor on him as well. Abraham would be promised a son through whom the promised nation would come. Abraham had a son already, Ishmael. But God said, no, Isaac is the chosen son. Isaac would have twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob the younger would be the chosen son through, which, through whom the, the chosen nation would come. And so we're already seeing the seeds of the idea of the elect of God, the individuals chosen by God for divine purpose and for salvation. And of course, this is stated openly in the New Testament. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. The elect of the kingdom plan, how glorious is that? You know, I I had many discussions with my heavily Arminian dad for years about New Testament passages on election, and we could never seem to see eye to eye. Then he started listening to sermons I preached through Genesis, and he became a Calvinist. Because he said, God chose Abraham, God chose Isaac, God chose Jacob, God chose Israel. I can't get away from that. So far, we've seen the interruption, the resistance, the strategy, and the elect of the kingdom plan But what's the kingdom plan going to look like when it's finally consummated? What does it look like when mankind is truly and perfectly having dominion and subduing the earth? And that brings us to the fifth piece of God's kingdom plan, and we'll call it the preview of the kingdom plan. The preview of the kingdom plan. What does it look like when a pre-fall man who is without sin lives on the earth? Or what would it look like if Adam hadn't failed? Now we have to go outside the bounds of Genesis to see that because in Genesis that hope is simply by faith. It isn't realized 
yet. And of course, that preview of a kingdom plan of dominion, of subduing, meaning to tread underfoot, can only be found in one person. That is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is described by Paul as the second Adam. This is associated with his work of salvation, his work of redemption. He is the first man, so to speak, of a regenerated people. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15.45, So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The point is, is that the life of Jesus Christ is the life of the second Adam. Jesus didn't come to earth just to die, but to live. And the life of Christ demonstrated by his power in his sinless glory, it demonstrated all that God created Adam to be, all that God created us to be. And so Jesus lived his life in the manner that an unfallen Adam might have. And by his death, he restored that future back to mankind through the elect of God, Ephesians 1. And I I could give so many illustrations of this, but let me just offer a couple. Matthew 8, 23 through 27, ends with a conclusion. Even the winds and the sea obey him. Jesus has calmed the storm. And we see definitely Jesus proving his deity by his miracles, but he was also doing something else. He was also demonstrating having dominion, the dominion to which Adam was originally called, dominion over nature. How about Jesus walking on water? Matthew 14, Mark 6, John 6. Bolstered by his faith and seeing Jesus walking on the water, Peter walked on the water briefly. I have heard more sermons about what a failure Peter was because he sank in the water. You know, the other 11 were staying in the boat. This is not a lesson just in great faith that Peter had for a brief moment, but it is a lesson that tells us that for a few moments, Peter exercised dominion over creation. What were Jesus and Peter both doing that reminds us of the dominion theme from Genesis 1.28? They were treading underfoot the creation, the meaning of having dominion. And by the way, Peter apparently saw in Jesus' dominion over the waves an authorization for his own dominion, his own mastery. And I want to be very precise about this. Peter was not trying to imitate Jesus as God. That would be blasphemous. But he was trying to imitate what the second Adam could do, the perfect man in dominion over creation. One more example. Jesus rode to Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. Mark 11.2 says that this was the colt of a donkey that had never been ridden. Would you try to ride the colt of a donkey that had never once had a human being on his back? Not unless you're wearing some padding and a helmet. But Jesus demonstrated easy dominion over this animal, over the animal world, and in this case, an unbroken, unbroken donkey. In other words, he was operating prior to the decree of God in Genesis 9-2 that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. A few years back, our family spent a few days at Yosemite and we were at Mirror Lake. Now, it's filling with silt, so it's really more like Mirror Puddle at this point. It was very cold, 
and much of Mirror Puddle was frozen over. And so we found a little spot with a view. We had a little snack with us. And when we were eating, a beautiful young doe just came sauntering up to us. Just within feet. She walked close enough we could have touched her. She just casually walked by our family, looked at us, kind of looked at our food basket, went on to some other people. Just like it was the most normal thing in the world. It made us think of what an unfallen world would be like, one in which we have perfect dominion and perfect relationship with God's creation. And of course, that brings us to the final key piece, the completion of the kingdom plan. The completion of the kingdom plan. If we take Genesis 1, 26 through 28 as the central directive, the core idea of God's redemptive plan, we should expect to see the themes of creation and dominion continue on in Scripture. Uh, sin as man has hampered our, our ability to fulfill the purposes of God, and so God inaugurated this plan of redemption, and through God's plan, which is centered solely on the cross of Christ, the Savior, the King of Kings, what has been buried in the sinful history of humanity will rise again, once again, in the future. Now, it won't happen all at once. It will happen in stages. This is evidenced by the Bible's clear teaching about a coming millennium, that so many of the promises of God will be fulfilled in the millennium as an intermediate state, a time between this kingdom, this state, and and the final state. This will be a time, though, when we begin to see really what it looks like for humanity's full covenant-keeping reality and capacity to be restored to us. The millennium is the stepping stone toward this final state, and you must have this stepping stone. Now, I know that this has primarily uh, been a look at Genesis, but I want to close our time together in the book of Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation 21. And just to prove the point of the completion of the kingdom plan, what all of this is aiming for, what the millennial, millennial kingdom is a stepping stone toward, You remember the list of features of the kingdom we started with from Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to walk through those again, except this time from Revelation 21 and 22. The first feature, mankind in a pristine, perfect world created by God. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. The second feature, mankind exercising dominion over the earth. Look at chapter 22, verse 5. Chapter 22, verse 5, There will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. The third feature of the kingdom Mankind is a perfect representative of God on earth as the image of God, the perfect representation. The previous verse, Genesis 22, 4, and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. We are the perfect representative of God at that point. There's a fourth feature, mankind multiplying into nations spread over the earth. Back in chapter 21, near the end, verse 24, 2124, and the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Chapter 22, verse 2, 
In the middle of its street on either side of the Lamb was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's a fifth feature of the kingdom, mankind working as God's representatives on earth. Revelation 21, 26. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into New Jerusalem. The honor, me means money, goods, things. We are God's representative. We'll bring things to God from the earth. A sixth feature of this kingdom, mankind in perfect fellowship with God. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and He will dwell among them and they shall be His people and God Himself will be among them. What a glorious relationship. Chapter 21, verse 22. And I saw no sanctuary in it for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its sanctuary. A a temple implies a need for mediation, a, a need for separation. There's no temple here because the temple... Is God Himself in direct relationship with us? This is the seventh feature. Mankind in sinless relationship with God. Chapter 21, verse 4. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away. Chapter 22, verse 3. And there will no longer be any curse. I Just stop for a minute. Just stop. And there will no longer be any curse. Every day of our lives is saturated in the curse. There will no longer be any curse. An eighth feature. Mankind in perfect fellowship with one another. Chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the authority to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Perfect, sinless relationship. Perfect fellowship with one another. Our elders have just all gotten a book that we're reading together called Resolving Conflict. And it's this thick. Because there's so much conflict in humanity. Conflict even within the church. Perfect fellowship. No, after you. No, I insist. After you. That will be life forever. And the ninth feature, mankind organized in nations with a central capital nation. Revelation 21 verse 2 describes New Jerusalem. What nation is New Jerusalem in? Well, we get some clues. The first clue is in chapter 21 verse 19 where we see the foundation stones of the city wall adorned with every kind of precious stone. The foundations are ornate. These stones are roughly parallel to the stones worn on the breastplate of the high priest of Israel described in Exodus 28. We get a second clue in Revelation 21.12. It had a great and high wall. It had 12 gates and at those gates 12 angels and names have been written on those gates which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of what? Israel, the sons of Jacob of Israel. We get a third clue in chapter 21, verse 14. Then the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were written the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Why are their names important? Why are the apostles honored? Well, God gave them a future job. 
Through his son, God assigned them a future. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration that speaks of the coming kingdom, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Ethiopia. Israel. Once upon a time, God determined to create a kingdom for his own glory, for his own fame. And this kingdom will be brought about by his blessed one and only son who will fulfill the role of the perfect human king as the divine son of God. The millennial kingdom, the beginning and the end, will see the son of God crushing his enemies on this earth. And then the plan will be completed at the end of the millennium as 1 Corinthians 15.24 says, Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. That's just Genesis getting us started. But I told you I would tell you why this is important, and so I think the right question to ask is, so what? We walk through this story, let me give you three so what's. Because we don't want just, just to be information. The first so what is that you are to be kingdom-minded. You are to be kingdom-minded. I don't know what my last words on this earth are going to be, but it might be you, might, you ought to be kingdom-minded. We're kingdom-minded in our witness to the world. We're kingdom-minded in our families, meaning we're obedient kingdom citizens. We're kingdom-minded in the church. We're obedient in the church. We're gospel-centered in the church. We're kingdom-minded in our personal comfort, our personal peace. Colossians 3 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. But if we could continue that, Christ is above, preparing to come back. That the ultimate end of thinking on things above is to continue forward, to think of things the way they're going to be on the earth. That's where it culminates. You are to be kingdom-minded. Could I say it this way? Don't ever let a day go by where you don't ponder the kingdom of God and the coming glory that is ours. Just a second, so what? The church is to obey the central directive. The church is to obey the central directive. The command to be fruitful and multiply is exactly what Christ told the church to do in the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What does it mean to make disciples? Baptize them and teach them to obey. The people at Babel wanted to use their grouping together solely for their own benefit. The church is not to be like them. We're not to view the church as solely for us and to care little for the lost. If you say, I don't really want the church to grow or I don't care about the lost, you would have loved the Tower of Babel. You would have been very welcome there. And here's the third so what. And this may seem obvious, but it must be said. To be part of the kingdom, you must love the king. There is no other way. To be part of the kingdom, you must love the king. 
You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You must acknowledge your need for a Savior. You must be so completely loyal to Christ that you would give up your life for Him. You would give up any who would hate Christ. You would give up family relationships if that means following Christ. Whatever it takes, you submit to Him as your sovereign. Well, that's just a little look at Genesis 4. This series on the Old Testament witnesses to the coming of a millennial kingdom. I've chosen some broad ranges of texts. We're going to do Psalm 2, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, the entire book of Isaiah, and then five chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah 2, 9, 11, 24, and 65. We're going to do Jeremiah as a whole, Ezekiel as a whole, Ezekiel 37 and the Valley of Dry Bones. Love that chapter. Daniel as a whole, the book of Joel as a whole, Amos, Micah, Zephaniah, and Zechariah. And somebody says, only Revelation 20 teaches the millennium. No. The Old Testament is replete with teaching on the millennium. And we're not even being specific about Israel yet. That'll take another several series to do. So I'm looking forward to this. This fall will be in the Old Testament, going book by book in these various big high points. And and I hope you'll uh, be reading and thinking about this as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for that incredible, incredible commencement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you created a kingdom on the earth whereby you have assigned your creation of mankind to be your representatives, your kingly representatives on this earth. Adam and Eve blew that responsibility and they through Satan's influence, brought sin into the world. And the rest of Scripture has been the story of you redeeming your kingdom and redeeming the people. And Lord, while we don't fully understand why you would introduce sin into your creation in your plan, we do understand that without that, you, you could not highlight your grace. You could not highlight your mercy And you could not highlight your wrath. And so we see that your redemptive plan points ultimately to yourself. To give bright, shining, blinding glory to you and you alone. To glorify all of the attributes that make you who you are. That in your plan of redemption, all of mankind, those who have rejected Christ, And those who have received Christ will bend the knee. They will declare that He has the name which is above every name. Lord, we would join in the prayer of the Bible at the very end. Come, Lord Jesus. We look forward to that day. And while we look forward to working our way through the information about the Millennial Kingdom, every person in this room would prefer it simply come. And so we would pray that Christ would return soon and that he would relieve our troubles and our trials in this world. Come soon, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.